Folk Squad Goals is proud to partner with Monthly Maine. If you have long hair, then you know the feeling of constantly being on the hunt for hair ties and bobby pins. Plus, it's hard to read books when your hair is in your face. Enter Monthly Maine. Monthly Maine is an affordable hair tie subscription box that delivers you a monthly supply of all your hair accessory needs, no matter your lifestyle. Plus, each box has a motivational, encouraging theme to help you stay in the right mindset to reach your 2020 goals. With all the hustle you've got planned this year, let Monthly Maine help you achieve more and worry less. Visit monthlymaine.com. That's monthly, M-A-N-E.com to start your subscription today. Book Squad Goals, a podcast. Um, <laughs> act one. <laughs> act one. Scene one. Uh, okay, I'm just going to say right off the bat that today we are talking about The Need by Helen Phillips, and this is a book that uh, probably benefits from going in knowing as little as possible. Yes. Um, so we're going to be spoiling things, and we're going to be spoiling things starting with our intro question. So... If you do not want to be spoiled on this book, um, I recommend going to our little table of contents section and skipping forward and listening to our interview because Emily interviewed author Julie Marie Wade, and that will be coming up later in the episode. So you don't want to miss that, uh, but also don't spoil this book for yourself. Okay, now that that's out of the way, um, our intro question for today is going to be a short and simple one. You can explain yourself if you want to. Um, do you believe in alternate universes? Uh, I'll go. Anyone. <laughs> Welcome okay. back, Susan, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we're so excited you're here. I'm so Yay. excited to be here. I missed you guys, but it's great that I got to see you in real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I missed this. I miss seeing yes. you on screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a <laughs> special. I'm, the way I'm used to you. Um, <laughs> okay. So I don't know if I believe in it necessarily, but I do think it's fun to think about because yeah. I I often think about like how many little tiny things had to happen, you know, right when they did for certain events in my life to have happened. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think like, well, if one of those hadn't lined up, like, how would it have gone? And I do, I yeah. wonder if, I wish I could kind of like peek in on that <laughs> alternate universe, mm-hmm. but I don't know that I believe in it, but like, for example, the way that I like got Roger was, my dog, um, was kind of weird. Like I was supposed to, I was going to the Humane Society to pick out a different dog that day. I already knew which one I wanted. His name was Rigby. Um, <laughs> and on the way there, it was like, well, it's also adoption day at PetSmart. I'm going to pass by it, so we might as well just, like, stop in. And then mm-hmm. I saw Roger, and it was like, that's my dog. But I often mm-hmm. wonder, like, what if Rigby was my dog? <laughs> How would my whole <laughs> life have changed? Rigby. So I think about stuff like there. that. Like, somewhere there is a Susan who, like, still lives in Indiana, has a dog named Rigby, and, like, who knows what she's doing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's true. These are things I think about. But that said, I don't know that I actually believe it. 
is I, out there. I feel similarly. Like, I don't know that I necessarily believe it. I haven't put that much thought into it. I do think it would be nice. And it's, like, comforting to think that sometimes. Or interesting. And who are you? I'm Mary. <laughs> it's me. Okay, congratulations to Mary. Oh, yeah. Oh. Unrelated. In an alternate universe somewhere, there is a Mary who didn't get engaged on Valentine's Day. Oh, no. But this one did. Yeah. <laughs> congratulations to this Mary. And friend slash soon-to-be husband of the pod. Yes. Husband of Todd. the pod, Todd. Yep. You've heard him before. You'll hear him again. I'll be hearing him we love Todd. forever. Todd's going to be my pod-in-law. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Potter in law. (laughs) That's what Ben is to me now. Yep. Um, I'll I'll go. Uh, This is Kelly. Um, I I think I do believe in them, and mostly because I there was recently an episode of This American Life, which. LOL, we just said Act One referencing (laughs) This American Life, but now I'm actually sorry. Sorry, Ira Glass. Sorry, Ira. Uh, there was recently an episode where uh, one of the first parts of the episode was about um, how there is, like, like a genuine, like, scientific theory about alternate or multiple universes existing. Mm-hmm. And there is this website that you can go to called, like, Universe Splitter or something. And you can go there and, like, submit, like a question that you have, like, should I do this thing or should I do this thing? Like, you have two options. And then you submit it to this thing that, like, I I can't, I don't understand science. But look this up. I'm Basically, the website right sends now. a signal to this, like, thing somewhere in some other country and this supposed thing, like, splits the atom or something. I don't know. Not splits the atom. Splits something. <laughs> um... And then it, like, supposedly creates, like, in this universe, you were going to do this thing. And it gives you an answer. Like, so the example was, like, Ira Glass was, like, I have a beard right now. Should I shave it or not? And the thing was, like, uh, tonight you do- you shave your beard off. And in the in another universe, like, there is an Ira who won't shave his beard off. It's And, like, we just created that split. It says, scientists say that every quantum event plays out simultaneously in every possible way, with each possibility becoming a real and separate universe. You can now harness this power and mysterious effect right from your iPhone. How? Yes. You do exactly what Kelly just said. And then it will contact a laboratory in Geneva, Switzerland, and connect to a Qantas brand quantum device, which releases single photons into a partially silvered mirror. Each photon will simultaneously bounce off the mirror and pass through it, but in separate universes. And then there's a little star that says, according to prevailing quantum theory, universes cannot contact each other. Not responsible for the user's actions. (laughs) Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Yeah. yeah. But the guy who that who Ira is talking to on the episode is uh, David Kestenbaum, who's like a scientist and like a science writer. And he was saying that he believes in it, but there are a lot of scientists who are like, this is bullshit, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So like many scientific theories, it's like, you know. Who knows? Who's to say? But. This is Emily. Um, yeah. So this is something I thought about. I think anytime anything... 
tragic happens. And this is kind of like what this book is dealing with. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think this, I mean, I don't really know what the, um, you know, who can say why Helen Phillips wrote this book, but it seems to me like the type of thing one might write after experiencing some sort of loss Mm -hmm. and considering what their life would be like had that not happened. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's kind of weird because, you know, one of the things that this book deals with, and I'm sorry to kind of get into talking about the book, but um, one of the things that this this book deals with is uh, kind of looking at how um, you can't really appreciate what you have if you've never lost it or never Mm -hmm. like you know Mm -hmm. um and so i think it's like really natural to like after having experienced a loss obviously i'm talking about the death of my brother like to wonder like what would have happened in like an alternate universe where like my brother stopped smoking or you know like we got treatment somewhere else like and I always kind of think yeah. about it in terms of, like, video games. Like, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you can play through a video game several different ways and kind of, like, see what would happen. And I don't know why, like, I always kind of think about the different things that could have happened to my brother in terms of that. And I, like, because that exists, right? Like, video games are sort of, like, a way that we can play out, like, alternate versions of the same story um, mm-hmm. in a way that's, like, really concrete. So I, I don't know. Like, I kind of think about it that way. But... Um, I don't know. I think it's something that's like really nice to think about. And it's something that I think we naturally do think about. But I, uh, I believe very firmly in like coincidence. Um, I don't think things happen for a reason. And I think, uh, this alternate universe thing sort of suggests like more of a trajectory than I think is like in true in real life it's real it's true in video games like video games have a trajectory but mm-hmm. and stories have a trajectory trajectory but i just feel like real life is kind of more chaotic than that and so i have a hard time picturing the alternate universe thing like being real i do really like the community episode about alternate universes <laughs> it's a really good <laughs> that episode. episode that's my favorite yeah. for sure <laughs> it's a really good one <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, there you have it. Also, a follow-up question: If you if you crossed universes and saw yourself, would you make out with yourself? Mm. Okay, my question was going to be no. The question I was going to ask not. was: Would you fuck yourself? <laughs> yes. No. But then I wasn't sure if that was going to make people uncomfortable, so I didn't. That's ask an age-old um, question, really. Absolutely, I would though. Oh, me too, would, for sure. I would definitely not. But okay. <laughs> that wouldn't even cross my mind. I would be scared that I was going to, like, make some kind of time paradox or something. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's w- would you risk it for the biscuit? For the biscuit. No. <laughs> for the biscuit. <laughs> well, we all Sometimes know how risk to. it for the biscuit is doing, so I would say no. Yeah. Because. But the Bachelor is wow. in a, a time paradox right now, wherein yeah. it's never in what- there's an alternate reality where we got Mike as Bachelor, and that's a it's much true. better reality. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> anyway. Speaking of tragedies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So here we go. We're going to read the Goodreads summary, which we always do. So when Molly, home alone with her two young children, hears footsteps in the living room, she tries to convince herself it's the sleep deprivation. She's been hearing things these days, startling at loud noises, imagining worst case scenario that, oh, imagining the worst case scenario. I was like, that's wrong grammatically. Um, It's what mothers do. She knows. But then the footsteps come again, and she catches a glimpse of movement. Suddenly, Molly finds herself face-to-face with an intruder who knows far too much about her and her family. As she attempts to protect those she loves most, Molly must also acknowledge her own frailty. Molly slips down an existential rabbit hole where she must confront the dualities of motherhood, the ecstasy and the dread, the languor and the ferocity, ferocity, (laughs) the banality and the transcendence as the book hurdles towards a mind-bending conclusion. In The Need, Helen Phillips has created a subversive, speculative thriller that comes to life through blazing, arresting prose and gorgeous, haunting imagery. Anointed as one of the most exciting fiction writers working today, The Need is a glorious celebration of the bizarre and beautiful nature of our everyday lives. Okay, hold on. That last sentence is also grammatically incorrect. Yes, that's what I came here to say. (laughs) That's a a dangling modifier. Bad. Even I recognize that. Mm -mm. Uh, That ain't modifying anything right there. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So. Just able to drop that grammar knowledge on you. All right. Yeah. I didn't know what it was called, but I knew that, like. Something was dangling? Yeah. I was just like, that's wrong. Because it says the writer, and then it never brings her back up. Whoops. Never brings her back up. (laughs) Okay. Discussion topics. Who wrote this? That's my discussion. So. (laughs) Who did this? Who is responsible Uh, (laughs) for this dangling modifier? (laughs) Episode title is Dangling Modifiers. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, This novel takes two genres we've seen many times before, and even discussed on the podcast, domestic thriller and alternate universe sci-fi, and combines Mm -hmm. them. How did this melding of familiar beats work for you guys? And I want to say domestic thriller, couple next door, stranger in the house. Uh, we did read for the book club before it was a podcast, Dark Matter by Blake yes. Crouch, yes. which, was, yeah. which also kind of combined the two genres. It was thrilling. Yeah. A bit. Yeah. I don't think it was, yeah. I don't know, it was, it wasn't that domestic. Like, it was kind of, but yeah. I don't know. It was more of but a sci-fi. I feel like calling the need a domestic thriller is kind of a stretch. And I think if you told people this was a domestic thriller and they picked it up thinking that, they would be very pissed off. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah, in fact, I read a lot of Goodreads reviews that that it seems like that happened to people. Like they picked yeah. this up thinking domestic thriller. They read it and they were like, "That's not what this is at all." It starts that way. <laughs> I think that's a fair <laughs> very criticism. very briefly, like first twenty pages or something. It's yeah, it does start thriller. that way though. But it's interesting <laughs> that um, what. Did we just read that started very similarly with the intruder <laughs> in the house? The, uh, help me out. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't. Do Did I? we read something with an intruder yes. in the house? Yes. The, the, one... the book about Africa, or not Africa. Yes. Um, what was it called? <laughs> what? The... <laughs> American Spy? Yes! <laughs> Thank you. The book about Africa. <laughs> I was wrong. I, I couldn't Africa, think of the I word American or the word spy. 
Okay, that also started <laughs> off with a woman in at home with yeah, two kids true. and an intruder. That's so true. I got that deja vu. I also got deja vu book. from Dark Matter because yeah, that's another alternate universe where that person's confronted with their Himself. own self yeah. wanting mm-hmm. and like that one that self wants something from their life similar to yeah this. however i thought the i thought this worked really well like i really liked this book a lot um and I, I have a lot of questions still i guess but i really liked kind of going back and forth between what was happening in her home and what was happening with the dig the archaeological slash paleo-botanical yeah. mm-hmm, yeah. dig um, and trying to figure out where this was going to connect. But, yeah, that's all I have right yeah. now. I just, I think it worked. I I didn't know anything about this book going in. I didn't read a description. I didn't re- hear anything about it. And so, like, it worked really well for me because the first part of the novel alternates between that archaeological dig and you know, everyday life, and then Molly freaking out because there's someone in her home and trying to, like, wrangle her kids. And each time, I would read this book before I went to bed at night, and each time I would finish one of those chapters, it would end on a cliffhanger with her, you know, peeking around in the living room and thinking she saw something move or something like that. And I would be like, oh my gosh, I have to keep reading. Like, it really propelled me forward. And at a certain point in the book that's not too far in, that does stop. Um, Mm -hmm. but at least in the beginning, those chapters establishing the world and Molly's life felt really sort of like stereotypically thriller to me. And so when we get hit with that twist of, oh, this is actually an alternate universe situation, I truly did feel shocked and it worked on me. And so I think that that is a testament to how this book is. Truly, like, if you don't know anything about it, maybe it works really well. But if I had known about it, I don't know if it would have affected me at all. Yeah, I think I just knew that it would be weird. Because what I had heard was, like, it's about motherhood and it's really weird. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that sounds fun. So, but, like, I think I think it would still work. Uh even if you did know. I mean, I think it's it's almost always preferable to not know would, going mean, into anything. I don't think I would have found it bad or something, because I really enjoyed it. Yeah, but you it. wouldn't have been, like, wondering I wouldn't have been as on the edge of my seat. the same way. Yeah, because it or was very suspenseful. In this well, case. even after you know that the intruder is, is Molly again, mm-hmm. you still don't know what's going on really or like how she got there or why or if she's real or if this is actually like just something going on in well yeah and that's what i was also gonna say is that like molly is set up as an unreliable narrator Mm -hmm. from the get-go because we immediately learn that she hears things she Mm -hmm. you know keeps thinking that she hears her kid crying but it's actually a siren or like yeah. you know she yeah. sees things in the corner of her eye and, and you're you're like is this and right really so anxious I, about being alone and right. I read a couple of things about this book previous to reading it and this is kind of one of the issues with my job yeah. is <laughs> I kind of know about 
all the books already. Like, and there's no way you can escape even, that because it's yeah, your job. So like even right. So like, even if I haven't read something or I don't like, I didn't know where this book was going to go, but I also mm-hmm. I already kind of like knew what it was being compared to. So like, I'd read that it had been compared to us. So mm-hmm. obviously, like okay. right away, I was like, that tells okay, you everything. Is probably her or some version. I didn't know like where right. she came from, but I knew that um, I had that sort of like expectation set up already. I also had heard it compared to a novel. I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast, but I know I've mentioned it to you guys. A novel called I'm Thinking of Ending Things, yes. which is similarly a, a novel that starts off very. Um, sort of like more traditional thriller and becomes more cerebral as it goes on and more surrealist. Um, And I think because I heard that it was compared to I'm thinking of ending things, I was expecting more of this to be happening in her head because that's kind of the direction without, I don't want to give away. I'm thinking of any things. If someone wants to read it, I don't feel like this gives away too much, but the direction that I'm thinking of ending things goes is like more cerebral than this. This is more like, oh, this is like sci-fi. This is actually happening. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm a little, I was a little, in one way I was kind of like expecting what happened. And in another way I was kind of like expecting something different and was a little let down that it didn't go that way. So mm-hmm. um, I wish and like Kelly, you mentioned this earlier, I feel like this is the kind of book that you really benefit from not knowing anything going into it. And I kind of wish I'd been able to read it from that perspective. Cause, um, yeah, as soon as, as soon as things get compared to other things, yeah, I feel like that's just a recipe for disaster because it's never going to be exactly like that thing. And what you're thinking it might be in relation to that thing might not be yeah. where it's going. So. And if you really loved that other thing, <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. you're like well it's not that thing yeah. <laughs> I didn't well, know yeah, anything like, about it either and so maybe that's part of why yeah. it did work really well but I, I mean I, I don't think it that, ruined my experience but yeah. it definitely tainted it a little bit I don't know yeah I mean even up until really up until the actual end which I know we'll talk about in a little bit so I won't talk about the end but up until then I had like three different kind of theories in my head of what might be happening or where it was going to go and it wasn't any of those (laughs) so like it's good when I don't find it predictable at all like even up until the actual end but I had a really cool theory that that I was like it's got to be this and that's actually still pretty cool even if I figured it out (laughs) but it wasn't the only thing that I definitely knew what was happening was when she came in as a fish at the party and I was like oh that's obviously her yeah like I didn't see I didn't even think that was (laughs) but when she figured it out I was like that see like that's really terrifying like it's really Mm -hmm. like menacing in in that moment that that's what's happening even though she's not doing anything scary yeah um She's actually That's the other like, thing entertaining that makes it all the children in a way that is probably helpful yeah. to all the adults in the room. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I was actually surprised scary. that she didn't she didn't harm anyone really. Like, I mean, we can get into what we think happened in the end or whatever. But like, I kept thinking 
you know, like, there are a lot of really bad ways this could go. And definitely, like, Molly is thinking those things, too. But at the same time, I... I'm glad it didn't because, you know, like, she is literally the same person Mm -hmm. as the person that we're hearing from, except for this one thing that happened a couple weeks ago. And it's, like, at the core of her being, like, she is not a person who would, like, harm any other one, any other person, like, intentionally. Yeah, but there is a version of her who did harm people. Yeah. So... But that is a different version. Okay. Like, we don't know what happened to that version of her. Ah! Yeah. Time period. And we also don't know at what point, like, in her life that happened, you know? Yeah. Universe paradox. Um, So, obviously, the biggest thematic focus here is motherhood. As of right now, none of us are mothers. But I read something really weird in... Animal moms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got two babies on the bed with me right now. They're both on yeah. the bed sleeping. I gotta take a picture of this. <laughs> None of but. us have given birth to human children yeah. or Just have kittens. adopted human children. There um, is a kitten children screaming outside my door right now. Yeah. There are lots of animals everywhere. But, okay. I read something really weird in the New York Times review of this book. Uh, which I was reading earlier. So, this is a quote from this review. The novel, it should be said, may well mystify non-parents. It may even mystify parents who have forgotten the reality of the early years. Perhaps these people will judge Molly as she judges herself for not being able to cope alone, for falling apart when her affectionate and perceptive husband is out of town. Um, (laughs) I was, when I read that, I was like, this must be written by a man. And then, like, Mm -hmm. moments later, the person was like, I wish I could tell her that it gets easier, and I, like, looked, and it's a woman who has kids, and I'm like, what? Like, to me, it's really weird that anyone would think that this was not, like, a fully empathetic portrayal yeah. of, a per- of a mother. Like, <laughs> like, I didn't find it difficult to understand her struggle at all. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. no, I didn't either. Even though I'm not a parent, like, it's pretty clear to me that being a parent is exhausting as fuck. Yeah. Like, uh, anyway... What do you guys think of this novel as a meditation on motherhood? I don't I don't know <laughs> Aside how from that. you could read it as anything other than sort of a celebration of the complexity of motherhood because you can mm-hmm. simultaneously feel like I love these children so much, I would die for them and also I'm so tired and I wish they would just be somebody yeah. else's problem. I really love stories where we get to see moms not enjoying being moms yeah mm-hmm. like um i think about the babadook which i fucking yes. love that movie think about like, tully one the, yeah one of the things about that is like about the babadook and tully is like neither of those moms are like bad no. moms and they don't want they don't want to like not be moms but sometimes mm-hmm. Your kid isn't an angel. Sometimes you have fantasies about strangling your child. Um, And I just really appreciate that because I think generally women are given this one narrative that like motherhood is beautiful and that it 
is natural and comes easy and like like once you're a mom like you just love your child yeah and uh kids are fucking annoying like i was so annoyed with these kids in this book i think part (laughs) of especially viv i know i was about (laughs) to say i think part of um like what spoke to me about this version of motherhood is like it's it's a lot of the things that I'm afraid of about being a mom. Yeah. Like, I, again, don't have kids, but, like, it is something that's a pretty real possibility in the future. But a lot of what's happening here is, like, the shit that scares me, which is, like, yeah. oh, my God. It's, like, if my husband's out of town and I have to fend for myself, can I, like, do that? Mm-hmm. Do, who can I call if mm-hmm. I need help? My family doesn't live here. Like, I still am going to have to work. So how do I deal with that? Um, that feeling that, like, your body is not yours anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. All of that is, like, stuff that's really scary. And it's not stuff I ever really thought about until, I don't know, probably until the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, I think... So their combined age was 68, so she's probably 34. So she's, like, mm-hmm. you know, close to our age. Yeah. It's, like, mm-hmm. it's just, it's very frightening, all of those things. And another thing that really scares me about being a mom is the pressure to love it all the time. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. I hear people talk about yeah. it, and they're, like, oh, it's hard, but it's obviously the best thing I've ever done. And, like, I absolutely love every minute of it. And I think, like, I don't know, when I'm just around kids... I don't love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, mm-hmm. like it'll be different when it's your kid. Okay, maybe but what if sometimes. It's not? <laughs> but like sometimes, what if I hate that kid? Because <laughs> um, we, you are given like, like what if your kid is a Trump supporter? Yeah, that's what I <laughs> like. Kelly was saying. One of my biggest yeah. fears. Uh, well, I'm our kids won't. Hopefully, won't. Just by the kidding. time our kids are voting, maybe the world Trump will already will be have dead. been subsumed yeah. by the sun. But, um. Yeah, like, I think part of what is really scary about the idea of being a mom, to me as a non-parent, is that I won't live up to the idea of what it's supposed to be to be a mom, because this is what you're fed as a woman. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's even, like, mom shame, right? yeah. Like, this is a hashtag I've seen on Instagram, or, like, heard people talk about this concept of mom shame, where, like... Because, partially because of social media, everyone's portraying, like, their best moments at all time and not the hard moments. And so all we see of motherhood is just, like, beautiful birthday parties and happy children and cute outfits and stuff like that. You don't see, like, your child is sick and, like, throwing up everywhere or which was horrifying in this book (laughs) or like your child is screaming for no discernible reason and you are exhausted and also want to scream, you know, like you, nobody Mm -hmm. sees that stuff just because of the way we have kind of like curated our world. And so there's this idea that motherhood has to be perfect. And so I really appreciate it when novels like this say, it's not that motherhood's a bad thing or that people shouldn't want to be mothers, but also it's not a hundred percent sunshine and roses at all times. Yeah. Like kids are volatile. 
and hard to deal with sometimes, and it is exhausting. I was kind of like, when you read this quote, Kelly, I was like, is her husband affectionate and perceptive? I don't know. We didn't see him much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess he tried to video chat with her a whole lot. That's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was trying. She's probably getting really it's... concerned, honestly. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, she's, she, whenever she thought about him, it was with affection, mm-hmm. and it seemed like they had a really supportive yeah. mutual relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but also, like, even even then, like, it, currently in our present society, like, it is when you have, like, a mom and a dad, it is really rare that it is actually 50 Oh, yeah. You know? Yes. Like, the woman is, is often mm-hmm. going to be doing more, you know, plus she's, you know, breastfeeding. Oh. Like, her body is my lord. Like. So much breast milk in this. In this yeah, book, I say? truly horrified. Yeah. Truly horrified by all the breastfeeding. Every other page was like, and then her milk came down. And I was like, came down from where? <laughs> <laughs> down the down the tubes. I, I guess. I guess I haven't like contemplated breastfeeding that much. And it oh, look, sounds bad. Do not want. And like, oh, yeah. I read a review on Goodreads that gave this book one star because of the breast milk in it. I was like, dang, somebody was triggered by the breast milk. <laughs> That's sexist? I felt like that was a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I was like, too much. It was like one star, too much breast milk. I was like, what? <laughs> That's a like, lot. I mean, again, I find this like, review now. I feel like we got to read this. Again, that's a real <laughs> funny thing. That's a real part of motherhood that is probably hard. And I give mother, motherhood one star because too much breast, <laughs> breast milk. It's probably hard. <laughs> but like also as a non-mother who has not had that experience, I was just like, oof, this sounds bad. Why do people do this? Yeah. It was. But- I thought like the constant reminder of it, though, was really effective yes. at like oh, yeah. driving home a lot of these things which is just oh, yeah. like no matter what you're doing when when you're at work and you're super focused when you're scared when you're wherever else the doing whatever else in down. your life and you're away from your kids you are always a mom <laughs> like yeah all times it's like the a very coming down. it brings us back into like the physicality of motherhood and exactly what you're saying susan with like the concept of you have a body but it's not really yours yeah Mm -hmm. well and you are an animal like yes she talks about how she feels bad for cows when she when she pumps because (laughs) like someone's milking them and then we're like taking the milk and giving it to humans do you you think joaquin phoenix read this before he gave his oscar speech (laughs) probably (laughs) oh my god the cows not um probably there's a lot of animal stuff going on. Um, I I love, I watched the Oscars with Emily and Ben, and Emily, and Todd was there too. Emily, <laughs> who is a vegetarian oh, you know. and does not drink milk, was like, I don't know, Joaquin, yeah. you need to calm down. <laughs> yeah. It just seems like a strange forum for this. <laughs> weird, <laughs> weird delivery. Like, PETA is a cult, y'all. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. You know. That's true. Um, um anyway, uh, speaking of animals, yes. Uh I think 
I think it's <laughs> speaking of animals, yes. <laughs> I think motherhood is like a very like a thing that we think of as being animalistic, um especially mm-hmm. when we think of like the mother protecting her young, you know, and mm-hmm. like which is such a big thing here because no no matter what she's feeling, like whether she's angry or frustrated or whatever, she has this like protection instinct that like comes above all else in any moment so it's like she could be like i'm gonna kill you if you don't shut the fuck up and then all of a sudden she hears a noise in the other room and she's like oh my god grab my kids gotta like hide Mm -hmm. so uh yeah i think and i think that it while this book does do a lot of showing us like how terrible and like exhausting motherhood can be i think it really also shows a lot of the good moments and like the like desperate love that she feels for these children and like the moments when you know when she has them with her in bed or whatever and it's just like they're warm and they smell so good and like whatever like you know and I think like without those parts it wouldn't have worked as well either because we wouldn't have understood like what she has to lose you know Mm -hmm. so yeah I agree I, I think that I mean Helen Phillips uh, I believe is a mother based yeah. on her author's bio. So I don't think you could write obviously. this and not be a mom. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think so either. <laughs> um, so piggybacking off the motherhood theme, why don't we talk a little bit about the title? I'm reminded of the conversation we had about Naomi Alderman's The Power, where the title takes on a number of different significant meanings throughout the book. Um, And I realize this is a very back-of-the-book reading group discussion (laughs) questions question, but... Oh, my God. What is the need? (sighs) What is the need? I mean, in a a way, I'm still stuck on the breastfeeding thing. Um, (laughs) It is like that... Did you write this breastfeeding review? No. Yeah. (laughs) No. Mary's like one star. Uh, one star, one too much star, breast feeding. Too much breast milk. It is, you know, like the child's <laughs> need to feed, the, you know, Molly's need to provide that for him, her need to have that protector role. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's what yeah. I thought of it is like that primal urge. Yeah. Yeah. I th- and not just to. Oh, sorry. No. Go ahead, Susan. You're good. You go. Okay. Now I feel so much pressure to make it Please. so brilliant. Oh my god, you better say <laughs> uh, something really good. <gasps> you know what I was going to say would be smart, because I always say smart things. So. <laughs> I haven't said anything smart since the poetry book. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> no I, I didn't um, say anything smart that episode, so. I think, so I agree with the primal stuff, and the which I think relates to the animal stuff we were just talking about and like that the instinctive need to care for and protect your children. I think there's also, I was trying to think about it in relation to her, her work as well, because like the cover art is plants and Mm -hmm. she's a paleobotanist. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's like, there's something maybe with a need to like, just understand and kind of get to the the root of things right for her mm-hmm. um that's interesting i don't know if it's if yeah. it's a thing i was no, just kind of trying to think where how does it maybe work in a different way outside of just like the mom stuff 
I could 100% Sounds see that. Like a thing. Because her yeah. whole focus at the site, like, her pet project is finding these objects that are like objects in our world, but just a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Like a Coke can where the letters are slanting to the left and not the right. Or a Bible where all the divine pronouns are feminine. And, like, she wants to explain these things and feels this mm-hmm. need, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm. to <laughs> explain these things and find out where they came from. But she just can't until she can and doesn't want it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I think that that's, uh, yeah, good idea. Did not think about that. And yeah, I mean, I do, because I, obviously, like, the the way that this book was written was written for a reason. Like, mm-hmm. she chose for her to be a botanist because of something about her personality, her character's personality. And it, like, does factor into the book in a big way. And so I think that's a good read on that. I feel like there's also a sex thing we could talk about here where this with the scene of her watching herself have sex with her husband. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. We have a lot of needs as humans. I think that the what I noticed the most about that scene and we can talk about how this is a need too and maybe this kind of this goes into the ending a little bit I think, but uh I mean I I would assume part of motherhood is kind of like wishing that you had two of you, one to be a mom and one to be, you know, what you were before. Right. Which includes someone who can hang out in the basement and read all those books that have been sitting on the shelf and, you know, still sleep with your husband because those are things Mm -hmm. that – those are two things she mentions not having time for. And it's two things that happen in the basement because she (laughs) she looks around at all the books and thinks like, I – I always think about how I wish I had time to read these books, but I don't because I have kids. And she also watches herself have sex with her husband and thinks like, man, I remember when we had time to do that before we had two kids. Um, And so there also seems to be this commentary about kind of like wishing that you had two of yourself and also maybe... Again, not a mom, so I can't say, but maybe there is this sort of, like, division of self as well once you become a mother where you're like, I have an identity as a mother, and it's very different from my identity as a person and all the other things I value. Mm-hmm. Because, like, being a mother often, like, usurps all those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like a more of a priority. Like, your kids are more of a priority than yourself a lot of the time. Exactly. Yeah. That reminds me, too, I think that overall there's a, a, like, longing and need for just, like, the type of intimacy that involves really being understood by Mm -hmm. another person. And, like, the most, she says, like, when Maul is crying, like, on her, that that's the most intimate human contact she's ever felt. Because she is, that's herself. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's the only person that understands her love for her kids her husband's probably the next closest thing mm-hmm. but he's not her yep <laughs> yeah um, well because you can never know someone all the way mm-hmm. yeah like no matter how well you know someone like there are still parts of that person in their most like innermost thoughts yeah. that like 
you just won't ever know. Yeah. And I know you guys can probably relate to this um, if you're perfectionist like me, but like there's always this there's always this sense where it's like, yeah, other people could do things for me, but if I just do it, I know it'll be yeah. right. And it like yes. and you see that you see her doing kind of thinking this way in the book because she's like watching Maul take care of the kids and she's thinking like I need to tell her to do this and then she's like but she's me so she knows that already so you get the (laughs) sense like when her husband's watching the kids probably in the back of her mind she's like he's doing that wrong like I should just do it right you know I I definitely identified with that (laughs) this taps into like the same fantasy as Hermione and the time turner in Harry Potter (laughs) Of like, I wish I could just do everything myself. <laughs> yes, but this this also that has wish. that weird uh, thing where it's like she trusts herself to do these things, mm-hmm. but then she also can't trust herself because she's afraid the entire time that she's going to steal her kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but there are those like really lovely moments of just like warmth between her and Maul, like when they clean up together. Like, which sounds like, oh, it's just a chore, but, like, they... Oh, my God, if I could clean the kitchen with myself. Oh, my God. (laughs) I would need, like, eight of myself and then someone else to actually boss us around to, like, motivate us to clean because we all hate cleaning, I'm sure. Um, But anyway, there's, like, this, you know, they, like, do it in the same order as each other and, like, they know the other one's movements and it is just an act of helping because it's, like, she sees how tired she is after getting the kids in bed and stuff. Um, And then they're, like, okay, well, your turn. Like, (laughs) bye. And it's, like, it's kind of, it's always, like, sad and emotional when they leave each other or come back together in those moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, then we can move on to talking about, like, their relationship with each other, because I think, like, we all kind of expected that their relationship would be very antagonistic, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it really turned into something different than that, yeah. so. Well, it is kind of, I think, and this is just me speculating again as someone who doesn't have kids, like, a motherhood fantasy. Like you said, like, she trusts herself to some degree, she doesn't see a way out of having Maul, as they kind of differentiate them, differentiate themselves. She doesn't see a way out of Maul just, like, helping her or, like, having this partnership. And it is, like, her ideal partnership. Because it's just another her to do yeah. all the stuff. And she can, like, hang out and read those books in the basement. Or take a nap. Or, like, whatever. But even still, it kind of shows that, like that wouldn't be as satisfying as you think it would be. <laughs> yeah. Because she's still jealous and upset. And the creepiest yeah. thing is, like, all the descriptions of them watching each other mm-hmm. while they're taking turns with the kids, like, creeping and peeping through the like window. <laughs> it, I don't know, it was really unsettling. Actually, the creeping and peeping is <laughs> what made me think that like, one of my theories was just that this wasn't really happening, and that... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was mine, too. Molly had created this other person in her head, and, like, to her it was real, but it wasn't really real. Mm-hmm. Um, and that she was maybe actually just watching the babysitter or something. Right. And I was like, 
if your neighbors saw this, <laughs> like, like I thought that was kind of what was going to happen was like, someone was going to yeah. notice that she was doing some really weird shit. And then we'd figure out yeah. that like, oh, yeah. she just kind of manifested this personality. Um, well, the only reason I felt like that wasn't what was happening was because of the artifacts in the pit, like those things being from another universe. I was like, like, how do those things exist right. otherwise? Yeah. So like, that was the thing that kind of like grounded it for me in like, I just kind of accepted like, this is what's actually happening. That's but true. I was, I mean, I guess I was thinking there it that that either could have been a hoax Right. Or that, like, something had happened at a certain period of, of time where those things existed that, like, shifted something, but not, like, that they, you know, came through from another universe. Mm-hmm. So right. I thought there would be, like, some surprising explanation for that, too. I just, I didn't have a theory on it. But I had yeah. theories on what was happening to Molly. At one point, my right. theory was that Molly was actually trying to kill her kids. <laughs> 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 Like, when they all got really sick, first I thought, maybe yes, Maul is poisoning them. And then I thought, too. well, maybe mm-hmm. she created Maul, and actually what's happening is she has poisoned them and herself, and they're all going out. Like I yeah. thought that maybe because they had had sex with each other, that, like Mary said, there was some kind of break in the, in the structure of universes, and everyone was going to die mm-hmm. because of that. Paradox. <laughs> yes. But they, no, they just had a stomach flu, which was disgusting. <laughs> yes. Um, I couldn't handle it. I really blazed through that section. Oh, man. And like, it was a lot. They, ugh, yeah, it was real bad. For me to still like this book after. That's saying yeah, something. After a 20 minute, very graphic, full family. Sickness. Stomach virus. That says something. Yeah. When. When the kids were, like, begging for water, and then she was like, I'm just going to drink this bath water if you don't give me water. I was like, it was real gross. <laughs> the bath water That was, was the, the grossest, grossest part, part to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because they described how there's, like, a yellow film Ew. on top of the bath water. It was really gross. I just really yeah. thought there like, was something, there was some kind of poison thing happening because of how quickly it happened to all three of them. So yeah. I was like, Either Maul has done this to them, or she's done it, and she's also yeah. killing herself. But here's the thing. When you have kids, and when you babysit, because I have been a nanny, so I know that this is true. When you're around kids, let me just put it that way, you get sick a lot. Yeah. Another one of my they great fears of motherhood. You get sick a lot. <laughs> Yeah, so that to me was like seems kids just pick like, up. <laughs> You're like, it's not poison. This is just yeah. a Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. This is just you have kids. Yeah, so they stick their faces and stuff and get. Maybe sick that and will be my sick. exposure so therapy, and I'll just have to face. face it as it happens. They lick your eyeball, suck. and then you get sick. Yeah. So when <laughs> she asked her to lick the eyeball. Yeah. Yeah. I was like relatable. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing I would want to do as a child. Can I lick your yeah, eyeball? Not me, because I'd be like, that'll probably eyeball. make me sick. And that was the type of kid I was. <laughs> so, <laughs> super fun. So, what do we think about the ending? Okay, the ending. Woof. I don't know that I know what happened. I don't know. <laughs> they just merged, didn't they? Okay. I so think so. What I like to think is that they merged. 
What could have happened mm-hmm. is Molly was subsumed by Maul. Or Maul killed oh, I her. I thought they merged. Yeah. Uh... Like, because only because from Molly's perspective, we hear that, like, while, you know, they're... She, Maul is lying on top of Molly. They're, like, matched up perfectly. And she says, like, the weight of it feels really good. And then she says, like, all of a sudden it's too much. So I wondered if, like, somehow Maul kind of, like, won out or something and, like, absorbed (laughs) her. But the way that the epilogue sounds to me is that it is... That they merged. Like, that it, it's sort of both of them, and, like, these mm-hmm. parts of both of yes. them have survived through. I have it. Yeah. Yes. But what happens to, uh, other husbands? Let me, so let me just read this part. Sucks to be Is him. his wife just disappeared? After his kids yeah. died? That's horrible. Yeah, he's fine. Yeah. Sucks to be him. <laughs> he's fine. Um, <laughs> Some other universe's problem. Yeah, they kind of press into each other. I don't know, like... Yeah, they press into each other. They press into each other, but then, like, the attitude at the end... Because it seems like they're just walking off into nowhere, you know? But I think it's Mm -hmm. just that they're... Mm -hmm. So that that gave me a mall vibe. I think it's just that they're doing (laughs) a really regular thing, but that she is, like, taking pleasure in it. Yeah. And... Also, the objects and, like, are there. More whole. <laughs> like she puts them all in the backpack. Yeah, I don't know if that's like a. Her coworkers are like very concerned about yes. her right now. I feel. Yeah, they're like, where when when she like leaves the parking lot and drives past her boss, and her <laughs> boss is like, what? Like <laughs> hand motions at her. Like I, I felt. Bad I for think them. the ending. Like, we can say, like, they merged into each other. We could say they, you know, like, one one out over the other one. But, like, regardless, there is a whole person at the end taking care of these kids. And, like... They merged into each other. It's not fully clear. Like, it is a little ambiguous, and we can interpret it in different ways. Which I think makes it all work like it's not a neat tidy ending necessarily even if it does make sense which perhaps elevates this to capital l literature literature okay what i was saying is um i feel like it's really clear what happened well maybe i feel they merged into each other like it talks about their organs like Merging, basically. I don't have the book in front of me, like, because I, I have to it. it. But I mean, it talks about their organs hurting in the final chapter after they merge. Merging. I said their organs merging. Oh, I guess I read that as yeah. just oh. the I body parts read it literally lining up with each other. Like, yeah, because they, they were merging together. I don't know why that would happen if one was um, killing the other. I don't know. This is from the last chapter. They lay side by side, holding hands. And then Maul was on top of her. Maul's face so close to her face. Their identical arms met elbow to elbow. There was a moment when Molly could have thrown her off. Could have asked indignantly what the hell Maul was doing. But that moment passed. She matched her shoulders to her shoulders. Her feet to her feet. Her thighs to her thighs. Her forehead to her forehead. Lungs to lungs, womb to womb, teeth to teeth. 
She pressed down on her as they're trying to press past her skin, into her blood, her muscles, her bones, Mm -hmm. the sublime pressure. It felt good, she had to admit. So good, until all at once it became too much, far too much to bear. So yeah, I mean, it sounds like they merged, but also it's like, it's not that I think she murdered her, it's that I'm like, did she basically, like, take over Like, did her consciousness win when they merge yeah. like are they I think truly sharing read it that way i don't but i think that there are, i think there are two things in that passage that could make you read it that way which is that maul makes the move to get on top yeah. of molly and yeah. mm-hmm. molly is the one saying all at once right. it was too much so maybe there was like mm-hmm. a more powerful it's like do, does she give in and then uh, yeah yeah, but I mean, um, at the end of the day, we will never know, and it doesn't matter, does it? No. But it's it's interesting to talk about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> did you guys have anything else you wanted to say about this novel before we give ratings? No. Still scared to be a mom. I uh, was super into the whole Bible being different because, like, I was just trying to imagine, like, yeah, that, that world was wild. In which God is a woman. By Ariana Grande, as Ariana said. <laughs> yeah, um, this 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 book was actually inspired by that song. I think. Yeah, that's that's real. But you can Goddess. hear Kelly karaoke on our travel zone. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. Yes, full circle Fans. people. You're a true fan if you listened to through the whole karaoke section. Travel zone. <laughs> um. Okay, so ratings, everyone. I, Mary. Gave it a five out of five. <gasps> because I blew through it, I couldn't put it down. Like, I really, really enjoyed it. I also, like, spoiled and told Todd the whole thing. Because <laughs> I read it a lot during our trip to Birmingham for Susan's wedding. And so we would be, like, laying in bed at night. And I would be like, hey, hey, you want to you wanna hear what happened? <laughs> <laughs> like, I couldn't keep it in. I needed to tell somebody. You had the need <laughs> to tell the someone. The need. That's funny because I yeah. did the same thing to Justin. Um, like we were, when we were hanging out the other day, I had, I was only like an hour in. Um, like it wasn't revealed mm-hmm. that the intruder was Maul yet, um, or if there was, it was like the coffee table had just moved or whatever. <laughs> and so he was like, "What's oh, that yeah, book that about?" So and I was like, "Oh, sounds pretty cool. Like, listen, I'm pretty into it." <laughs> I like play by play the first. <laughs> hour of it for him and then today he was like so what ended up happening and i'm like oh it got wild hold on let me tell you and he actually ended up listening to the end of it with me even though he hadn't listened to any of the rest of it so like i paused it so we could eat and he was like no keep playing i want to know what happens i'm like invested now (laughs) like you didn't even read the rest of the book but okay (laughs) so he's been spoiled but um I knew, like, halfway in, I was probably going to give it a, at least a four if nothing shitty yeah. happened and ruined it for me. Like, you know, Stephen King can do that. <laughs> he can take you from a five right to a three. Mm-hmm. But. <laughs> so. I actually think I'm going to give it a five also, though. Despite what? the egregious hey. vomiting. Despite. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I really, really liked it a lot. Um. I wanted to talk about it a lot. I was really excited to talk to you guys about it. Mm-hmm. I think I will be thinking we about it. We were excited to talk to you too, Susan. Huh? We missed you. Yeah. 
Oh. We missed you. We were excited to talk to you, too. Oh. I'm glad that your episode back was a good one where you liked I know. Thank God it wasn't one Um, I picked because I, like, almost never like those. So. (laughs) Thanks, Um, This is Emily. (laughs) Um, I'm going to be the weird one and give it three stars. Um, That's okay. I, I liked it. So, you know, again, like, three star isn't bad for me. I probably, it's probably, like, a three and a half. Um, the reason I wouldn't go up to four is because, you know, we were talking earlier about how the beginning was working really well and was really suspenseful. I feel like we found out what was happening way too quickly. And then, for me, the middle part of the book kind of dragged. Like, it was a really long time of just, like, doing that stuff in the middle where they're just, like, swapping out parental duties and, like, one of them's in the basement and they're switching clothes. And I just felt like that part kind of dragged for me, which is weird because it is a short book, but that took up a lot of space. And I feel like I got the point pretty quickly and didn't need it that long. Yeah. Um, It picked up again for me when they got sick at the end. And then I thought the ending was really good, but that middle part for me was kind of a... Mm. kind of felt like after the beginning was such a quick build um it kind of it dropped for me and the energy dropped for me we don't have that you know like we talked about how the beginning of the book you kind of have the two narratives happening at once which also helps build momentum and then that shifts pretty dramatically um which felt weird so I just I felt like the pacing for me was a little off, but um, definitely interesting. But I don't know that I'm going to remember it very well in a couple of months. Right. So I'll That's never fair. forget that vomiting, probably. So this is going <laughs> to stick with me. <laughs> also, I want I just wanted to say one more thing that I forgot to say, which is that on a style level, I really thought it was well written too, which is. Nice. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was. The milk came down. <laughs> <laughs> if there was a word cloud <laughs> for this book, milk would be milk. Yeah, down. just that sentence would be yeah. the biggest thing. Yeah, yeah. I I thought it was well, really well written too, and uh, I see what you're saying, Emily. I do. I I am glad though that it didn't like go on too long with us supposedly not knowing because I get frustrated when a book like continues to pretend that I don't know what's going on Mm, when I've already figured it out Mm -hmm. you know so I feel like it would have been hard for this book like once you see that the other person is her it's like you're gonna start figuring out what's going on pretty quickly um but I I get what you're saying I am gonna give it a four uh, because I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, and as we know, I never give fives to anything. Maybe I will get, I would give it like a four and a half. Mm. I'm gonna, I haven't rated it yet, so I'm gonna think on this yeah. a little bit and decide. I, um, I mean, give me, maybe I'll give it a five to make up for the person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. Maybe I should bump it up yeah. for that. I don't know. <laughs> give, give me a weird <laughs> multiverse thing. I just, I'm in. I've been trying to, because I'm yeah. usually pretty stingy with fives also, and but I 
I've been trying to just really go with like my gut a little bit more, like just how I react to it. Yeah. And I haven't like totally. I feel like it's the best one I've read in a while. Like I, I really like mm-hmm. wanted yeah. to keep going. I thought about it and talked about it a lot. I think I'll still think about it. So like that should get a five for me. Yeah. It's okay, totally. Suze, you can give out a five. That's another talk I have to have I with myself. You can give out a five. <laughs> I want you to give out five. Yeah. Um, okay. So now we have an interview with Julie Marie Wade. Yeah. So I'm I'm really excited because Julie Marie Wade is somebody who I've had the opportunity to work with in the past. Um when I was working for Arts and Letters, which is a literary magazine, we published one of her essays. And um, I don't like it's really cool because she's somebody who I like as a person. Mm-hmm. And I also really like her writing as well. Um, she writes these really amazing um, lyric essays that are very like steeped in feminism and queer theory and all this fun stuff. Um this collection is, well, we can argue about whether or not it's collection. It's something that we talked about in our interview because maybe it's a collection, maybe it's one long lyric essay. Don't really know. But um, it's in this, she's sort of exploring. Um, oh, it's called Just an Ordinary Woman Breathing. And in it, she's sort of exploring um, what it means to have a body and sort of like her her own story of how she came to terms with her own body and issues of beauty and femininity and things like that. So, um, it's really interesting and the cover is really cool. See? Yeah, it is. Ooh. Yeah. We talk well, about the cover here's too. here's the interview. <laughs> All right. But, um, Oh my gosh, did you hear my cat just then? I heard something and I thought it might be a cat, which is always very happy for me. <laughs> he said, I don't know if you saw, we just got a new kitten last week, so. Oh no, I didn't. And I, I pride myself on trying to keep up with everybody's cat. So I'm going to have to go and look at some pictures. Yeah, we weren't necessarily planning on getting another kitten so quickly, but we just saw this little guy and he kind of picked us and so you know he's here and he's purring in my lab right now so you might hear him talking a little bit but anyway how are you doing I'm good it's so funny that you said that about about getting a new kitty that chose you because on Valentine's Day three years ago the same thing happened to us and so I've been having an unreasonably long birthday for Tina who just was the kitten who now is three but she like pulled us out of the sadness of Ollie's death and so she just um she's very joyful and um she cheered up his his brother like our distinguished elder cat has this special friend and he's about to be 16 and she's three and they're inseparable and so I I just I understand how that can happen that a, a kitten comes into your life and just makes it better when when there's been sadness yeah, and you know, we uh you know, we were talking about like if we did get a cat, it would be really hard cuz we'd want him to be just like the pee and nobody could be just like the pee and you know, exactly. but he's his own little dude and he's very cuddly and sweet, so we've been enjoying him. 
but that's exactly how it is. They're all so different, but they somehow like you can love them all. Yeah. Our, our, um, so we have one other cat and she's, uh, not really warm to him yet, but it's so funny because she's like, you know, he's a teeny tiny kitten. He's two months old and she's five years old and she's, she's terrified of him. (laughs) <laughs> that's how they are like the little ones are like they're so powerful in the eyes of the other cat yeah. like what are you gonna do next where are you gonna balance where are you gonna count um it took our, our our older kitty like I think it took him three days before he accepted her presence mm-hmm. um and then he sort of took on this attitude that was like well she's obviously an idiot so I have to teach her everything because she doesn't know about warm laundry she doesn't understand you should get in it immediately like they're all these things she doesn't know so like as soon as he knew that his role was to educate her since she clearly knew nothing um he just like took to that in his superiority very very well and she completely looks up to him all the time but like you know over like a few weeks and months then it's just like I think inevitably they give in to it and say you're here and you're not that scary and I love you yeah we haven't gotten there yet but we're we're hopeful so it'll happen I really feel it will like I was worried when we brought Tina home because like who's you know, what do we do if, if it doesn't happen, but it did. And I think they, they just like somehow find a way to be together. I feel like I have to leave all of this in the interview when I, cause you know, on the podcast, we're very big pet people. So I, <laughs> I had love a, that. I love that. <laughs> I had a note on here, like ask Julie about her cat. So I'm glad oh, that I could, you I know. could make every conversation <laughs> about cats in some way. They're yeah, awesome. same. Um, so I feel like maybe we should officially start now that we've had our cat tangent, <laughs> which was very, very important, you know. Um, Absolutely. It's a prologue <laughs> to everything. So um, I'm speaking to Julie Marie Wade. That's who's been talking. Um, and I'm talking to her because she's awesome. But also you have a book that's coming out this month, Just an Ordinary Woman Breathing which I just finished reading yesterday and it was great. Let me ask you just to get us started about the title. Let me just say the title is great and the artwork is great for this book. So thank you. I feel the same way. (laughs) I would love to hear you talk a little bit about um, the title and the artwork on the book and how all that came about. Okay. Well, um, thank you for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, The title for the book is something that um, I would not have come to on my own. Um, It was something, it was a part of the book. And then um, the acquisitions editor at the Ohio State University Press, um, her name is Kristen. She's fantastic. And she um, was reading the manuscript and said, I don't think that the title that you have for this project is the right title. Um, I had been submitting it for several years as the hourglass and then a colon and then the subtitle meditations on the body. Um, Mm -hmm. And I can see now how that's really cumbersome. Um, But in my mind, it was like the hourglass was the central image. And I wanted, um, I wanted to like give the reader everything like, Oh, this is about embodiment. So you're going to see there are meditations on the body. Um, And she said, I think that's a little too um, explicit and directive, but also it's a little bit academic and it sounds like this book might be more of a, like a 
scholarly dissertation on mm-hmm. embodiment and a book of lyric essays. It doesn't, um, that title doesn't lend itself to something that has more of a lyrical quality. And so um, she made this huge list of words and phrases that appeared in the book that she thought might lend themselves to a title. And the line, just an ordinary woman breathing, which I also can take no credit for, um, is the last line of Sharon Olds' The Death of Marilyn Monroe, mm. which is um, a poem of Sharon Olds that I've loved um, since I was in college. And I wanted to print the whole poem in the book, but due to copyright um, and the cost it would, uh, the cost we would incur in order to buy the whole right for the whole poem, um, it was prohibitive. So we had to use only a little bit of the poem um, in the part where I talk about the poem. Um, But the five words are such a small fraction of the whole poem that we were able to use them um, in the book and use them in the title. And so um, when Kristen had written that down, on the page and I saw it, I wrote back and I was like, I feel like of all the things you've written down, um, this is really powerful. And, you know, in reading the book, a person could maybe hopefully would just like the title anyway, but then by the time they get to the fourth section and then they are sort of with me reading, like realizing I love poetry and reading poetry and then reading Sharon Old to such a touchstone poet of the body. And then realizing that, you know, she's writing about Marilyn Monroe, who's, appeared in the book a lot and like the idea of the hourglass body, the hourglass figure. Um, so it all kind of came together. And um, I just love the title, even though um, I didn't choose it and I didn't officially write those words, but I, I think it, it encapsulates the book beautifully. And then um, I also can take absolutely no credit for the cover image, except to say that um, I, it was the first image that was shown to me last summer. Um, and I loved it the same way that I loved the title. Um, I, I said, you know, you, you fill out like this pretty elaborate, you know, um, author questionnaire before your book goes to press and, and they try to work with things that you say. Um, and so I knew that the book, I felt like it should, I had really like, if it needs to have the color blue in it, if there should be water, there should be some way that the cover evokes a woman, but that it shouldn't be just like a photograph of a woman because it needs to be any woman, you know, an ordinary woman breathing. Um, and so I had all these really sort of peculiar things that I wrote down and I thought, how would they ever make an image or find an image that would match all the things I said? And then sure enough, you know, it's blue, there's water, it evokes a woman, but she's not, you know, a very specifically recognizable woman. Like somehow the design team just made this image um, come together and it's, it's in my mind, it's perfect. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, I, I really love the cover. I think it's great. And it really somehow fits with the essays perfectly. So I think they did a good job. And I know that's really exciting to get what you want. <laughs> it <laughs> like is exactly so, what you want. so amazing. <laughs> it was exactly what I wanted. And I could never have, you know, drawn out that image, but they, they somehow understood. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the subject matter of this book. Um, so you mentioned these are lyric, lyric essays about, um, well, they're about a lot of things, but I guess, you know, one of the things that you've already alluded to a lot is that this is a lot of this is about what it means to have a body and sort of like coming to terms with the body. So talk a little bit about that. I know that this isn't your first time writing about bodies necessarily. Um, so what was your goal with this, this book in particular in relation to the body? 
I was thinking actually, you know, when you know that you're going to be talking to someone about your book, you start thinking more about your book. Like, what was I doing when I first started writing this? Because, um, you know, books have, have strange origin stories. And usually by the time they, they live in the world, it's been a long time since they started living um, in your mind or your life. Um, and so I, best as I can trace this book, um, it goes back to the spring of 2012. Um, I, I wasn't exactly writing it at that moment, but um, I had finished um, a creative nonfiction dissertation project that was very different from this book. Um, and I mean, you you have lots of graduate student experience yourself. You understand like when you finish a major project and you haven't defended it yet or it hasn't been graded yet, you're in a kind of limbo. You're waiting for the next thing. And I was also on the academic job market and so had a lot going on, um, but I didn't really have um, a new project in front of me. And that's for me the best, like it's a very porous time. Anything could have happened, but I was clearly like ready, looking for the next thing I was going to write. And um, because I had been teaching um, classes um, in like feminist theory, women and gender studies, um, sometimes they were called gender and sexuality studies um, for those past six years. Um, I just got a lot of like books sent to me by publishers who thought that um, I guess I'm on a master list somewhere of people who have taught those classes and, you know, um, anthologies that I might want to teach. And I do remember very clearly getting in my mailbox one of those books, and I still have it, and it's always just like the treasure trove of, of the academic life when you get um, new books for free um, mm-hmm. that you get to read and maybe teach. And the book was called The Body Reader. And I look at this book a lot. I read read and reread and use it as a kind of touchstone a lot. Um, but it was coming to the end of when I was going to be teaching women and gender studies because ideally I was going to get a creative writing job. Um, but of course, all of that was still going to inform what I wanted to teach and what I wanted to write. And I just remember opening it up and seeing on the back that the classification for the book was embodiment studies. I had never seen that before. And I loved that the title was the body reader and it was lots of authors um, writing in a more like academic scholarly way um, about, you know, what does it mean to have a body and, you know, bringing a lot of critical theory, um, philosophy, you know, feminist theory, queer theory to bear on what it means to have a body. And I thought, whoa, like, this is everything I care about, mm-hmm. but I want to write my own body reader and I'm going to try to read aspects of the body of the culture, of course, but like, I really can only do that. I'm, I'm not a sociologist. I'm not an anthropologist. I can really only do that like as a, a memoirist and as a poet and lyric essayist. Like, I can really only do that I think if I start with myself. So something happened then when I got that book where I didn't really know the form it would take, but I wrote down body reader and I wrote down embodiment studies and I knew that I was kind of tracking what it was going to be. And I think maybe what it was going to be that was different, all those things, like how the body is connected to like gender and desire and sexuality and, um, you know, just how we move and, and live in the world and how we're perceived by others. All that is what I always care about anyway, but I was like, I've got to go deeper. Like, I have to figure out, like, I have to approach this like a cartographer. Like, I need to map it. Like, how did I learn what it meant to have my body and what are, like, all of the messages about body that I was imbibing from the time I was very little? And when I started to map them, I realized that I was they were overwhelming. Like what's not in the book is, is more than what is even in the book. But um, this is like the closest that I've gotten so far to like really making the, the map of, of the body that I wanted to make. So let's talk about 
feminist theory, gender theory, and how that relates to the body. Because I think one of the things, I don't know if fascinating is the word for it, but one of the things that I always find interesting about gender and its relationship to the body is that um, I think traditionally speaking, maybe not even traditionally speaking, we can talk about the reasons behind this, but um, women have a more fraught relationship with their bodies than men. Um, A lot of that's connected to um, ideals of femininity, which is something you talk about in this book. Um, A lot of that's connected to the fact that um, a lot of times our bodies do these really like strange things that we're not always completely like in control of, I feel like. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it often, I often, you know, I read a lot in, in feminist theory about how women are sort of in this like constant battle with their bodies versus men seem to have be more at peace with their bodies, generally speaking. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I was nodding the whole oh. time. That the podcast doesn't pick that up, but I was I was nodding at how how true that seems to be, and maybe that's even why sometimes um, the kinds of classes that I used to teach, um, you know, feminine introduction to feminist theory or um, gender and sexuality studies or just introduction to women's studies, um, it always kind of amazed me. But then I realized it shouldn't have amazed me that um, so often um, because these classes were typically required courses for graduation. Um, in meeting some sort of um, like sometimes it was like a cultural diversity requirement or something that um, students had to take before they could graduate and I always was surprised at how many of my female students um, kind of actively resisted those classes and then I realized at a certain point well maybe that's because this is hard like it's especially perhaps hard for um, my female students who like want to take a class that puts kind of a microscope on those feelings about um, basically like gender double bind, like ways that um, things that it may feel just easier to, to not think about those kind of pressures or um, just to say like the ideals of femininity don't apply to me or I love them. I'm completely fine with them. You know, I don't want to have to do all this probing mm-hmm. um, and, and go that deep into that subject. Um, but for me, I always found those classes to be, um, when I was in graduate school, I didn't have them as an undergrad, but I felt them to be very, like, it was better to just get it all on the table. Like, these are some theoretical tools to help you, but really kind of like, we're all in, in this together. And I, um, I think the gender double bind was always something that made a lot of sense to me, that it often felt growing up, like, no matter what you did, as a girl, you were making someone else unhappy or uncomfortable, um, or you were failing in some way to live up to something that um, mysteriously was already there, like some yardstick that had already been put in place and you didn't choose it, but then it was there and you sort of wanted to, you know, win the prize or be the best in femininity. And you also kind of wanted to shun it and run away from it. And so I felt that, um, that like tug of war in my own life, um, a lot. And then there's a concept in feminist theory um, that it's very helpful to me to have it, but it's also sad that I think it exists. But um, like horizontal hostility, that term for when members of the same group um, end up like fighting with each other um, in the same subject position or the same like relative um, maybe lack of power in relation to some larger force, they end up in a state of inviting rather than unity towards 
the thing that they might be um, all questioning on some level. And so it also made me sad to see growing up that there was so much like friction between women. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I would see like competition among women. And then I would see like women even who appeared to be friends with each other, like cutting each other down, like to other women um, or that sort of sense that even women might not be entirely trustworthy. Um, you know, as I sort of like watched my mother with her friends, or I watched like the female members of my family, like realizing that there was a lot of, though I didn't know the name horizontal hostility, that um, when women were together, they weren't always united um, or you couldn't always trust a woman to be like the, the confidant or the mentor that you needed her to be. And so um, that was also something that I guess came up when I was trying to map my history yeah. of relationships with bodies. One of the things that you focused on a lot as far as um, femininity is concerned in this book is this concept of beauty, right? Um, what it right. means to be beautiful. And you write about you sort of coming to terms with how the world perceives beauty, not just beauty in general, but your own beauty or like lack of beauty in certain ways. Yeah. So I guess just talk about that a little bit. Like what sort of things were you playing with in this, in these essays, as far as like your realizations about what it means to be beautiful um, and how you fit or don't fit into that beauty narrative. I like that term beauty narrative. That's a really, <laughs> I know I feel like I, I wish I had, I could still do this in a creative nonfiction <laughs> class, but like write a beauty narrative. Like we do literacy narratives a yeah. lot in, in school, you know, like the books that have influenced you. And I guess I'm always writing some version of a literacy narrative, but yeah, that's a really good way to put it. This is kind of a, um, I couldn't write about embodiment, my own, um, sort of education and embodiment without writing about beauty, which I didn't necessarily know that when I was starting to write, but what I kept figuring out, like as more and more memories were coming up and I was making all these notes, like, oh, that was really formative. That was really formative. Um, Every time I kept noticing those things and many of them were things that I hadn't, the themes are present in other things that I've written, but there were a lot of memories that came back that I realized I hadn't written about. Um, And they did seem to kind of anchor around beauty. And I figured out that um, part of the um, kind of double bind for me of growing up was that I was growing up in a house where um, really, as I understand it now, looking back, my mother really felt that she um, was not maybe perceived by the world. Like she always said, we are not natural beauties. We are not natural beauties. And there was this concept that some women just magically, I guess, were natural beauties. They didn't have to do anything. Um, they didn't have to work so hard, like the what you said before about like the battle with your body. And so I guess for my mom, there were people, I don't know who really many of them were in, in our world, but um, certainly they were out there like in movies. Um, also doesn't square with what I know now, like how hard people work to appear the way they appear in movies. But Mm -hmm. just my mom had that sort of notion that there were all these natural beauties. And then there were people like us who had to really work hard if we were going to be beautiful to others and desirable, but like we had the potential. So it was on us to, to realize that beauty um, and, and work at it. And I guess, um, so like, as I started to write it, I saw like, Oh, this was, it was kind of like the the thesis um, that was being advanced through my childhood was, 
you're not a natural beauty, but this is really important. And whatever else you do, it wasn't like beauty was the only thing that mattered. It was just that there was a lot of um, pressure, high expectation that I would, you know, do well in school. And like, I needed to be smart and I needed to be good. I needed to, you know, have a positive reputation on, on all the general virtues. But at the same time, like beauty was this imperative that I needed to be working on. Um, and I, I sort of had this, I guess, my own thesis, like counter thesis or corollary thesis, more like um, growing up where I started to get really fixated on the people that my mother thought were really beautiful or that my parents talked about. And they were all, um, my parents really liked, like to me, like they're old timey, but to them, I think they were just of their generation, like people they grew up seeing in the movies, like Marilyn Monroe was huge. We had all these Marilyn Monroe, like coffee table books or like old time Hollywood, um, 40s, 50s, and 60s, like figures. Um, so Grace Kelly was another. Um, they always seemed to be women who were um, tall um, or seemed to be tall on screen and blonde. Um, they were all white. Of course, that wasn't examined at all. Um, and they were all, I mean, presented to be heterosexual women. Um, mm-hmm. But like, then it kind of transitioned to like, in my generation, the, the figures we saw on screen that my mother liked or thought had, um, like, carried on that legacy. She would talk about, like, Nicole Kidman and Gwyneth Paltrow, and it's like, oh, they're still tall and blonde women. They're still, like, they're kind of following this pattern, and um, I'm tall, but I'm not blonde, and I don't, I'm not, um, you know, very, very slender or very, very curvy. Like, I don't really have their attributes that are, um, like, what they're being praised for. So I kind of had this as I was writing, I was figuring out like, oh, I was always studying. I was always noticing like who the people were who were supposed to be the natural beauties. And um, so many of them seemed to die young, um, like Marilyn Monroe and then later Princess Diana. And they, there was this whole feeling that I, and sort of, I guess that's the corollary thesis where I got really fixated on the idea that if you were really, really beautiful, then you were going to die young. But then it also meant that you stayed that way forever. Like the world didn't watch you get old. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the contradiction that I felt, and I, I suspect that so many kids and teenagers, like if we knew how to have the right conversation or open the right door, that they're carrying around all kinds of like really elaborate, but maybe not strictly accurate like things they've internalized and like whole worldview set up around something that was formative in their youth. But for me now I can see it was really like, I'm okay. Cause I'm not these beautiful, beautiful women. So the good news is I'm going to live a really long time. But the bad <laughs> news is I'm not going to be beautiful. And that was like a huge quandary. Cause I was like, well, I really do want to live a long time. I want to do all this cool stuff. But then like the trade-off is that I don't get to be part of that inner circle. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned something that I kind of want to circle back to, because you talked about how all of these women that your parents saw as beautiful were, or at least presented as heterosexual. Um, and I know this is something that you examine in a lot of your work, including this, uh, what, what it's like to grow up and not be part of that, the, I, I don't want to say like insider community, but you know, like the accepted community of like straight had, you know, heterosexual, like normal feminine, I say normal in quotes, which you can't see, 
but I can hear it though. <laughs> yeah, I can hear those chords. <laughs> you know that I don't think that way. Um, but I do. you know, I, I'm trying to get back to my question now. So, what about presenting as heterosexual is part of that? I, to use the term beauty narrative again, like how is heterosexuality a part of that beauty narrative? Because obviously that's a part of that uh, formula that you were just never going to be able to fit in no matter how hard you worked at being beautiful, right? Like you were never going to be straight. <laughs> right. No, that's true. And I mean, I guess this is a, a really strange, it's like the the power of the unsaid because for as often, like when I was writing the book, I was trying to map. It's not a strictly linear project, but it is as you move through like the five sections, I'm clearly an, a speaker who is aging, like through childhood and adolescence and into adulthood and um, recursive moments happen within those sections. But I'm, I'm sort of trying to trace like how, how those experiences of embodiment and education about embodiment, like build on each other. And one of the things so I, I realized like there isn't really until the second section um, with the camp counselor, um, there isn't really at the beginning, like um, even a kind of a hint of um, trying to track anything about like personal sexuality, but a lot more about just gender and like the, the physical nature of like, oh, what body am I in? What can it do? What's it like? Um, what does it look like um, in the first section? And I realized that that was probably part of like when I was trying to put some order to all the different memories and what I wanted to include in the book, I thought um, really the beauty is the thing that we talked about so often, like this work that we needed to do, um, you know, as girl and woman, my mom and I, and you're right, like my, my dad wasn't um, as implicated in that. My mom still had some pretty tough standards for him as well in relation to appearance, but there also seemed to be some latitude for men that, um, and certainly like a kind of personal freedom that my mother espoused for, for boys and men that would not have applied to me. Um, and I was only child, so there wasn't like a sibling to compare um, compare this with, or like a, a boy, a brother to compare this with. But um, when the power of the unsaid is really weird because you would think like, how can something that isn't mentioned gain so much um, traction and force and, and sort of power in your life? But really the fact that eventually I began to think like, oh, so why are we doing this? Like, why are we working so hard? What's like, what's the end game with beauty? Like, what's the point of it all? And it became pretty clear, like by the time I was like pre-teenager, right, that it's all about that you have to be ready to be, you know, dateable and desirable. And then all of that was framed for me as like entering the world of dating boys and then eventually like the world of marrying um, the right kind of man that my mom had in mind. And so um, when I began to say that like beauty had a, like a, at least, you know, in my mom's view of the world, which while it is kind of extreme and obsessive um, and that was a big part of, you know, her worldview, I think, writing this project, by the time I got to the fourth part of the book, I realized like, oh, I see where a lot of this comes from too, though. Like I see how my mother was fed on a lot of cultural messages that exist apart from her too. Um, but that like the end game of beauty seemed to be this kind of um, heterosexual marriage that was um, 
sadly for me, like as a big romantic my whole life and kind of, you know, like I love all the love stories. I've always loved love stories. But the the discouraging part of this was that the narrative seemed to imply that you couldn't get love um, unless you were beautiful. But also like there's this kind of undertone of you're competing and so you need to be the most beautiful so you can get the, you know, the man who goes with the most beautiful woman. So sort of the Prince Charming of all this and he's going to be, you know, handsome, of course, and affluent and he's going to be like this ideal figure and then you're going to get him. And mm-hmm. part of what that means is that you're also going to um, beat out other women to get him. So like that competition, that like horizontal assembly aspect, that also bothered me because it was, a different way of thinking, like a a much less joyful way of thinking about like love, like you find the perfect person for you, but instead it's like you're trying to beat out everyone else to get to him. And it might require a lot of like trickery and like, you're going to have to fight for him and you're going to have to, of course, um, you know, entice him with this beauty you've so carefully cultivated. And so that was um, just kind of displeasing to me on its own terms when I realized that's where it was heading. But I also just didn't, really think even though and there was no way to talk about it I mean I just didn't know the words gay or lesbian or queer like I didn't have any language to talk about this then but I definitely thought I just don't think I'm going to find that kind of love with a boy or a man like I just don't think it's going to happen and but it's probably because I'm not beautiful enough or like I'm too you know independent of spirit or like other things people said to me that I thought were all euphemisms for just not being um, beautiful enough. But I think actually some of those might have been euphemisms for like, maybe you're gay. Um, but <laughs> but I don't think my parents, my parents didn't even think um, that that was really like a, a possibility. Like it was um, more like to, I, to this day, I, I really don't think my parents think of gay people as real. I think that they just think of gayness as a kind of um like an illusion or illness or temptation or like, it's just not, they don't really see it as like a part of identity. So I didn't have a language to talk about it for a long time. And I'm really grateful for all those, you know, cultural studies classes and all those, all those books that college um, gave me because without them, I think it would have been harder to write a different narrative. Um, So let's talk about the form of this a little bit, because I feel like we like talking about form. Um, I this, do. This is a question that I always struggle with, and you've probably been asked this before because you write poetry. Um, what? Tell, tell me a little bit about. So this, these are what you would consider lyric essays. Um, tell me a little bit about what is the difference between a lyric essay and a prose poem, for instance. Oh, it's such a it's such a good and essential and hard question, and uh, <laughs> it is. students That's why and I, I talk about it answer. all the time. <laughs> I have yet to find the answer to. I only have. Um, well, hopefully, I have better and better questions or moments of insight. But um, I mean, I teach students, um, you know, same students in multiple classes, and sometimes we're on the under the poetry banner, and sometimes we're under the um, creative nonfiction banner. So they're like, you know, over here, is this a prose poem? If I were in your other class, would it be a lyric essay? And on some level, I mean, I've kind of had to say, I think if you, the reader, I mean, if somebody wants to read this book as um, a collection of very long prose poems or even the sections um, within the lyric essays um, as individual prose poems. I mean, 
who am I to stop them or who am I to say that that's wrong? Um, I, I think that maybe people reading, um, you know, maybe people come to a text with their own expectations of what a post-poem or lyric essay is, and then they find um, what they're looking for and they call it something that may or may not be what the author would call it. Um, I think for me, um, I mean, sometimes I make the distinction um, by length. It doesn't always work because some lyric essays are like micro lyric essays. Um, in the case of this particular project, um, I sometimes think of this as just one book length lyric essay. Sometimes it's easier to think about it or talk about it as um, because it has five parts, like to think of the parts as um, linked lyric essays, but because they're all so long, like the first four are about 10,000 words and then the last one is 15,000 words. So when I was writing them, I was thinking um, I wanted them to be individually send outable as mm -hmm. um, freestanding essays, but I was already writing in such a long form that I knew I was already going to be kind of pushing the length, the upper limit of length of a standalone essay that I could send out into the world. Um, and so to me, like it sort of took, like it took the post poem off the table because when I think I'm writing a post poem and when I intend to write a post poem, I always have this conscious, like, okay, so length is one of the arbitrary boundaries that I'm putting in place as I'm constructing the form of this. And I'm, I'm not necessarily saying it can't exceed a page or I'm not necessarily putting like a word limit on it, but I am thinking like about the density of how much, um, how compressed, like how spring loaded can I make something? So when I think of a post poem, I usually think of like um, a moment or an occasion that I want to render in a small space, but that I don't want to lineate because I don't want the reader to have time like with those enjambments to pause. I want it to be as if when they finish reading the post poem that they have like taken one breath and ingested the whole thing. Um, and when I was writing this, that is not the feeling that I had at all. The feeling that I had was like wanting to keep, um, it could, it's sort of like a feeling of like wanting to keep turning a dial or keep unraveling a skein of yarn. But like, I wanted to keep pulling at it and pulling at it so that I could go deeper than I thought that I had in, in previous work where it seemed like what I most wanted to do was make the scene, but that I was rendering like, you know, as lyrical and beautiful as I could here I was like well I want to do that but I want to keep pushing like what does this have to do with embodiment like what did I mm. learn from this what questions arose from it and so it felt like I knew it was going to be really long and the book does kind of feel like just one long meditation on embodiment and um so it by those terms it didn't feel like I could think of it as making a prose poem while I was making it but if somebody else finds prose poems in it, um, then maybe sometimes, and I think, I, I think maybe I even have to say definitely sometimes, I read a lyric essay um, and I see it almost like this mosaic and some of the bits in it, like if you think of a mosaic that has like, you know, feathers and rocks and tile and like pieces of these things, I see prose poems inside lyric essays all the time, like sections that could just be like the there's that piece of tile, there's that rock that could be pulled out and could stand alone. And maybe there are even moments like that in my book, um, but I certainly find them in other people's books where I think that could stand alone. Um, but I, I'm used to, in this context, like seeing it embedded in a larger mosaic. I think that's a really good answer. 
So oh, good. Well, I'll have to tell my students. I had a good answer once because often they're like, would you teach the same thing if we were in the other class? And then sometimes I mess with them and I give them something that's published as a prose poem and then something that's been published like in brevity, you know, and so that, you know, and I say, sometimes it's your editors who are deciding. And yeah. then my students who like wonderfully tricksy things like, they'll send something to the student literary awards and they'll enter the same thing as a prose poem in the poetry side. And then as a lyric essay in the creative nonfiction, and we've had students like place with, these are judged by outside readers, not by their teachers, but like with the same piece in two different genres. So like, I do want them to feel like there's a lot of room um, and that genre boundaries are, are definitely flexible. Um, yeah. But I have a different feeling, I guess, as, as a writer when I'm writing something. Um, and I don't always know when I'm reading something, how that writer was feeling when they wrote it. Yes, that's the uh, thing about writing is you don't always have control over what readers get from what you're writing. And that's to me, that's kind of fun because you write it and then you're it like, is. I don't know what's going to happen with this. But like, just because you read it differently than how I meant to write it doesn't mean you're wrong. So at least exactly. I don't think so. No, that, but, is, that is really like satisfying to get more from it because of how a reader yes. explains it to you. Yes. So... Um, really important thing that I want to end on because I know that this podcast is being released on a really special day for you. Oh, it is on uh, February 24th. That's right, right? That is right. Tell me what is you a special to day. <laughs> yes, tell us about it. It is a really special day. So um, February 24th is um, my wedding anniversary, legal wedding anniversary. So we always, we get to have, Angie and I get to have two um, anniversaries because for so long, um, and I, I observe them strictly both, um, Angie feels like we could just have one and it would be okay. Um, but I like to have double double the romance and double the observation. Right, why but, not? Um, for a long, why not? For a really long time, our anniversary was only um, June 1st. And then um, six years ago, February 24th, uh, 2014, um, which actually is when AWP was in Seattle. So um, after we got married, we had a very brief time when we were not at a conference, but then we went to, we went to AWP, um, which is in my home city. Um, so Seattle was like a really nice um, location. Um, and we got married in, in Bellingham, where we met, which is a couple hours north. So this is... Um, this will be released on the day of um, our sixth wedding anniversary, and um, six is my lucky number, so that just feels also very special. Yeah, and then and twenty-four the to, the together, that's six. So yeah, yeah, and then exactly. So it's just it's everything's kind of lining up really well. I feel like it is. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> and Angie's birthday is May twenty-fourth, so the twenty-fourth was already a really good number, but I pay attention to numbers. Like I, it was important to me that we got married on a day that felt like a good, like just numerically good found and two twenty four fourteen. 14, like that felt really good. Yeah. Well, congratulations on your anniversary you. and on the book, which is really Thank great. You. And I hope everybody runs out and buys it as soon as it becomes available this week, putting that out there. Thank you. Um, okay, so we have some listener oh, feedback for Elevation. We do! Yay! Yeah! We do! Uh, this is from Darcy, our friend from Sheridan, Wyoming. 
She writes, hey, ladies, I just finished Elevation. I never read Stephen King, but I stepped out and took a chance because you all did. This book was not just about a mysterious ailment, but about love and friendship. In this short book, I found myself laughing, and in the end, yep, tears were streaming down my face. I gave this book a four. Yeah. Thanks for reading along with us, Darcy. I'm glad you liked it. And we always appreciate it. I'm glad you liked it because I know we weren't super high on it. Um, I was. I I mean, everybody's different, though. And I love a good book that makes you cry. I liked it. Yeah. I Um, liked it. Yeah. So I guess that means maybe you should check out more Stephen King. Susan, do you have any uh, Stephen King recommendations or Emily? I know you both have hmm. read a lot of him. Yeah, I'm trying to think of Maybe a non less horror, more, uh, <laughs> one that would be like relatable. I mean, to this. again, I I mean, I know I mentioned this in the episode, but I would suggest if you like this and you want to read another novella, mm-hmm. I think The Body is a really good one. Yeah. Um, that's my kind of go-to for a novella that's not like horror. Um, if you mm-hmm. liked what we um, what yeah. we talked about just now, if you liked the need, um, and the idea of maybe like stepping through it, ripping the space-time continuum, I would recommend The Langoliers. <laughs> ah, yes. uh, not about motherhood, but... Um, or, I think... Uh, I like to recommend The Green Mile to people who are maybe not as into the Stephen King horror, but that's a really good book. <laughs> you might have heard at the top of the episode that we have a new partnership with Monthly Maine, which is a monthly subscription box for hair accessories. So... Every month you get a box that has hair stuff in it, which is awesome because I don't know if you guys are like me, but I can never find my bobby pins or my hair ties. And mm-hmm. this every month will give you some stuff. But it's like cute stuff too. Like I got an adorable um, like velvety scrunchie that I have been wearing like pretty much every day to work to the point where people might be noticing Ooh. it. <laughs> it's very on trend. Yeah. And then I also got some like, you know, different types of hair ties to like different materials and then some bobby pins really cute bobby pins as well so it's not just like utility stuff but also cute and stylish and all the boxes have like a motivational theme each month so it kind of also gives you a little you know happy boost as well but right now if you head over to our instagram we are doing a giveaway of a free one year subscription that's a long time just one box the whole freaking year yeah so uh, get amazing. on Instagram, enter the giveaway. <laughs> I don't think no. Kelly's actually eligible <laughs> to win, so don't let her, <laughs> don't let it I'm deter kidding. you from entering. I can't actually do that. No. <laughs> I really wish no. that I was eligible. That sounds great. I quit the podcast and now I can <laughs> enter the giveaway. Are you going to come back <laughs> if you lose the giveaway? Yeah, only if I lose. Yeah, anyway, check it out and uh, there'll probably be some <laughs> pictures of me and my cool scrunchie floating around there too i want to see the scrunchie now it's very soft um what's on the blog guys well the bachelor won't die so i I really like the (laughs) way you described this as it's still happening to me (laughs) the bachelor is still happening to me (laughs) yeah fml the bachelor is still happening to me it's not uh not just something that you're watching it it really is an act of aggression a thing that's happening to you yeah yeah it is an act of violence against all of us yeah peter is aggressively not Ooh. good at no it. this is He's the worst bad. season i have ever watched 
Yeah, yes. it's pretty bad. And I have I haven't watched that many. To be fair, it might be the worst season I've ever watched. The recaps are good. The recaps are great. <laughs> because we're saying the show's horrible. Don't not read the recaps. The recaps like. are full of all the anger that you share with <laughs> us. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Hate watch with us. Do it. Or just we are hate nearing read the end, the though. Things as you hear this know. episode, we're nearing the end. Bless it's true. it. Um, Emily. Um, yes. Also, it's February, and we're doing February foreign films, and by we, I mean me. Though Kelly might be guessing on an upcoming, uh, or maybe not upcoming. I guess upcoming. it'll be out by now. But um, and uh, <laughs> it, down this past weekend, going yeah, this past weekend, Kelly guessed it. But you know, we're making it through. Uh, if you want to see what foreign films I've covered. Then check out yeah. the blog. Yeah. And to be clear, the one that we covered this past time, last time, uh, is Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which everyone should see. Spoiler <laughs> alert. I loved it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Susan? Uh, yeah. As usual, I reviewed a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it's been a little while, though. Um, yeah. but Kelly actually is the one that brought this podcast to my attention. Yes. Um, it is me. called Newcomers. The premise is that hilarious ladies, Lauren Lapkus and Nicole Byer have never seen any of the Star Wars films. And so they are watching them all in theatrical release order and talking about their experience, which so far has been, they, <sighs> they've gone on a ride in the first three. They've gone on a ride. They have no idea what's about to hit them with episode one, and I'm oh really excited <laughs> for that episode. <laughs> they keep, like, you know, first one pretty confused, not really loving it. By the third one, they're like, well, now they're in really for a treat. And excited. And it's, yeah, and their, yeah. their guests keep being like, well, that's great, but like, Time just to, to let you know, down. like, you might kind of come back down again real yeah. soon. And then, but then you'll come back up. <laughs> they're like, what is with these prequels? Like, oh. everyone keeps talking about them. Like, I just can't wait for them to experience Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> that was, like, that was me when I watched the prequels for the first time a couple years ago, when I watched all of them for the first time. And yeah. I was like, they can't be as bad as everyone says. Like, everyone's yeah, dramatic. They can. And I watched it, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, that was worse than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Remember, Jason Manzoukas said that he cried after he saw episode one because oh, yeah, he wanted so to bad. love it, and it was so bad that he as a, like, 30-year-old man, like, openly wept in front of his girlfriend and was just like, it's horrible. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> so, I really, it'd be great if he was the guest for this episode, but who knows. I bet he will be. That honestly. would be my dream guest, for sure. Because <laughs> they're friends with him, so. Yeah. Do they still call C-3PO CP-3P? <laughs> she has called it several variations. Of, she also said people CPO at one point. <laughs> Wow. Our guest was like, people, CPO? Like, what are you even doing? It's like, you have a chart in front of you. And she still would be like, so what's um pee-pee? Like, <laughs> she like genuinely cannot get it right. So they also, when they, when <laughs> someone said, well, yeah, droid is short for Android. She was, they were like, is that where the name of the phone came from? Oh, <laughs> like, no. That no. word existed already. <laughs> it's oh not God. from this. <laughs> no. So there's a lot of fun moments like that. 
They're not but. big sci-fi people in general, I'm guessing. No, but it I is like... I think if they were, they would have seen Star Wars by now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I just... I I watched them all for the first time myself, like, before um, The Force Awakens came out. And yeah. so this is a lot like my experience. Like, I, too, was baffled at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, like, you have so much context if you've like been with it for a while but if you just go in cold and you don't know shit about it it is like it really throws you in it <laughs> yeah. really does um yeah. there's not a lot of I'm explaining kind of like, how this world i can works. relate but i, I also can relate to them like starting to get really invested yeah. and like that's fun to hear too yeah um anyway that was a long explanation <laughs> also also on the blog todd and i are back with survivor posts Yay. It's back. It's a wild season. Everybody on this season has won a previous season. <laughs> so immediately all they stars. like step foot on the island and they're all like, what's our plan? Who's our alliance? And it's just oh insane. Wow. And um, I've written some other stuff. Woo. Go. T- TBD at time of this recording. Why a book club is coming up. Why a book club? We're doing not so pure what? and simple. What? By oh crap, Lamar Giles. Yes. Um, very excited to talk about this book. We're talking. We're talking purity promises. We're talking religion. Shelter talking, Christian kids. Yeah, I'm into it. It's like almost Sex like talking about lit. cults. I'm ready for it. So yeah, that's gonna be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to start reading it today, actually, because I was waiting until I finished the need to start this one. So it's going to be something very different. Um, <laughs> okay. I've been wanting to do a Sylvia Moreno Garcia book for the longest time. Finally getting to it. So for our next book episode, we are talking about Gods of Jade and Shadow. Um, I'm so excited about this. Just... All right, I'm not going to read the full description, but I just want to read this little blurb. The Mayan god of death sends a young woman on a harrowing, life-changing journey in this one-of-a-kind fairy tale inspired by Mexican folklore. Are you in in or are you in? Also, it's set in in the jazz age in Mexico. I am so down. I'm very excited. I've had this book for a long time. And wanted to read it, and so when you picked it, I was just like, perfect. You were I like, love, yes, 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 love yes, fairy yes. tales. So I am stoked yes. for this. Me too. Soon. Oh, the giveaway also includes with your subscription service oh, yeah. a book, <laughs> a copy of this book. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that was a key thing I should have mentioned. There you go. <laughs> A perfect reason to enter the giveaway. Yeah, um, you get a book and some scrunchies. Yeah. Get so, you a book and some scrunchies. If you have any um, comments or questions or anything about anything we've ever talked about, you can email us Want to talk about breastfeeding? Come on. At bookswuggles.com. We'll, we'll <laughs> I'm speaking over Emily. You don't want to uh, talk about breastfeeding? I can't hear what you said. She said, do you want to talk about breastfeeding? Oh. Yeah. Hit us yes. up. Hit us up. If you want to give us <laughs> any breastfeeding Let us know about your milk tips, coming down. Yeah. You can email no. them to thesquad at booksweggles.com. You can follow us at booksweggles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. 
Um, please subscribe, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts so that other people can also find us. Even if you don't want to leave a review, if you're, like, really lazy and you're like, I can't, I don't want to write anything, go, just go and, like, le- give us five stars. It's really quick. It's really easy. Do it. Um, yeah. Thanks so sure. much for listening. And please don't stop. Except for Can't when stop, one episode won't ends, stop. and then you can stop. Listen to this outro music. There it is. Burn. Burn.